Hello and welcome to Cup of Tea, a friendly, patient and gentle space for honest discussion and debate. In today's episode, we will start as usual with our tea review and then we'll go on to our topic of the day. Today, we're going to be talking about normality, whatever that means, acceptance and fitting in, but also anger, hiding ourselves and expressing ourselves. Why do we want to fit into society if it doesn't always want us? And when, how and why do we go about getting angry? So today uh, we've got one of the latest uh, teas from the Pucker set uh, that Katie, uh, my boss, got us. Um, so today is turmeric gold. Very nice. It's a golden blend of the finest turmeric, lemon fruit <laughs> and green tea. This is not just tea. <laughs> <laughs> That's my M&S version of introducing the tea there. Um, so yeah, I'm quite relieved actually because I saw turmeric and I was like, "That's nice." And I have had turmeric tea before, but I thought, well, "Do you know what would be really nice with that? Lemon." And I looked at it; it's already got lemon in. Very so, nice. Um, and it's got green tea, so that should keep us awake a bit longer to Definitely. get this podcast finished. Should we try it? Let's do it. That's good tea. Okay, what's going on there then? So, we've got the lemon on the top, sort of quite citrusy, mm -hmm. and then underneath it's got this really nice warmth to it, and it's surprisingly refreshing. So, if people are listening at a later date, it's the probably one of the hottest days of the year. Mm. Um, we're hoping there's going to be a storm later, um, but yeah, I think this is perfect tea. For a hot day. So this would remind me of almost what an adult version of butter beer could be. Oh, I see. Not yeah. not because it's vanillary, because it's not, uh, but because it it's kind of got a really nice mixture of sweet, sharp, mm. and and this really nice earthy taste of the turmeric. Yeah, it's very nice. Um, which I do like, and yeah. I I'm not normally a big fan of turmeric on its own, but it reminds me of the turmeric potatoes my dad used to make. Very nice, and turmeric's supposed to be very good for the immune system as well so, it is yeah oh that's brilliant well i think that might be one of my favorites actually yeah it's very good let's get on with the show today's first uh, part of the conversation is looking at something uh, that i have um, pompously named uh, the hypernormality dip uh, now i don't want to be a typical bloke and just rename something that some expert uh, researchers have probably already discovered. Uh, so if this already exists and it's got a name that's much less pompous, then please let me know. Um, but this is just a nice way that I've sort of uh, kind of named this phenomenon to make myself feel a bit more normal in a way um, about the fact that we've all experienced something like this. Um, the way I would describe this then is the moment when you think you might be gay or different in any other way and you don't really like what that means or you don't understand what that means. So you start engaging in actions or activities to make yourself hyper normal, to fit in, to um, not be seen as different. I remember uh, when I first realised I was gay when I was about 14, maybe early 15, 
I used to be in my bedroom late at night just praying constantly um back when I properly believed in God that you know he would make me normal again and that I wouldn't have to uh, experience all of these horrible things that I was feeling and thinking and and you know wanting I suppose um and that's really tricky uh but yeah, that, that's kind of my experience of, of that. Um, you know, I don't think I've ever been an, in quotes, normal person walking around high school with a spell book and uh, <laughs> pretending I was a, a wizard. But, uh, you know, as much as I was ever going to be normal, uh, that was my experience of that. Um, but I know, Harry, me and you have talked a lot about um, how people who are trans have that probably in spades mm. and I don't know if you wanted to talk some about your experience but also about what you've kind of heard anecdotally yeah so to sort of start with the anecdotes really this may well be something which has been documented in proper studies and things um, but certainly something which when I first came out was quite widely talked about in the trans community was how many trans people have tried to sort of push themselves to the extremes of masculinity or femininity in order to try to fit in to the body that they were born with. Um, so the classic example are trans women who, at, when living as men, um, were soldiers or explorers, um, thinking of people such as Jan Morris, who, um, before she transitioned, she was in the army, she climbed Everest she did all of these kind of like in those days certainly would have been seen as very manly very masculine things to do the ones I've heard I have to say seem to be more trans women um, trying to push themselves to masculinity as much as possible and um, before realizing you know this isn't me this isn't right and probably had always known that but that trying to push it away for me, I had a similar sort of experience, obviously the other way around. Um, I remember feeling that maybe if I just tried that bit harder to sort of be a, in quotes, proper woman. Um, so doing my hair, doing makeup, dressing up every day in tight fitted clothing, um, flirting with, with men, that somehow that would make it okay and that I would somehow be able to make myself into a real woman somehow but actually doing that made me much more unhappy particularly as I'd probably already realised at that point that I was different and that no matter what I did I would never feel like a real woman because I wasn't one and it didn't matter whether I wore a tracksuit or a tight tiny dress to go out in I still wasn't wasn't going to feel right yeah and it and it's really fascinating isn't it to me uh, looking as objectively as I possibly can uh, which spoiler alert for listeners is not very objective <laughs> um is how you said in our po podcast last week uh, that you were basically in your head a boy until you sort of were 11, 12. Mm. Uh, and I obviously never really thought anything about being gay much earlier than, you know, 14. Mm. But I didn't really worry about how I acted 
or what I wore or who I was or anything like that until I met society with a big mm. S. You know, and, and that society with a big S as as I was getting older was school, um, family, local town, all of that. And I remember that was when I first encountered having to change myself. Mm. It was not because of anything I thought. It's because of what other people outside of me thought. Yes. And it's very similar to what you said last week. Yeah, it chimes very much with that. That, Because, yeah, mine was very similar. I think, you know, up until the age of about 10 or 11, girls and boys in primary school acted fairly similar. Um, I was in a mixed group of friends and we all kind of liked outdoor games, playing football. Um, me, me and my sister would play football or fighting games with our boy cousins and that was fine. Um, and it was, yeah, it was only when, you know, you get to the age of 10 or 11 and boys and girls start just hanging out with each other rather than in mixed groups and you start noticing people kind of becoming more conscious of what they look like and starting to fancy people and things that yeah it was at that point really that society kind of made it very clear to me that I wasn't a boy but I wasn't an acceptable girl either so somehow I had to change and at that stage I wouldn't have had the words to be able to say well the only way I can change the only way I want to change is by transitioning to live as a man full time. So I had to go through puberty as a girl. And so for me, the easiest way to do that was to try and conform as much as I could um, by, as I said, doing the hair and makeup and everything and trying to fit in. Mm. And, and it's interesting as well for me because it kind of sets the tone uh, for the rest of this episode, which, you know, again, in warning to our, our listeners, is probably may end up being quite an emotional mm. episode um, because I think what we're talking about here is the root of a lot of the anger and, and hurt and, and probably bitterness that is out there mm. amongst the trans community and the gay community. And you could extrapolate this from other kind of min minorities as well. For me, there is that moment, like I've said and like we've said, where you are free to be who you are and then you run up and you hit this big brick wall of society mm. and you get knocked back but you can't get through that brick wall so you kind of almost begin to acclimatize to the brick wall mm. you sort of start to think actually okay well i can't get through that brick wall so maybe i'm just going to walk along it i'm not going to threaten the brick wall i'm not going to i'm not going to try and break through because that might knock down some houses or connected yeah. foundations so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna quietly walk along the wall, looking over it. I can hear people playing in the yard behind it, mm. but I'm not gonna go through it because I'm not allowed. Yeah, and that to me leads on to probably our second part, which mm. is acceptance, and and not acceptance of ourselves because that would be, you know, too easy, wouldn't it, to allow <laughs> us to accept ourselves, but us as people who have been rejected to an extent greater or lesser mm. by different things in society seeking and craving that acceptance yeah and i think that's what we'll discuss in a few moments so i'll start with a story um and it's not a pleasant one really i don't think um 
when I was about 15, maybe 16, um, and probably several, many several times since, um, I would say things like, uh, I don't like stereotypical gay people, or um, gay clubs are awful and dangerous and seedy. And I would say things like, I'm not going to be one of those gay men. Uh, and, you know, I wouldn't sleep around and I wouldn't be that type of person. And uh, saying all of that is horrible, actually, uh, now, because those aren't my words. <laughs> I mean, they were. I said them, I felt them, I thought them, I believed them. But I don't think it was my belief that was talking or saying that. I, I think that was me desperately, I think, trying to say to society, to, to almost negotiate with society, to say, OK, I'm not the same as the majority of you and I never will be. I've tried. I've tried a lot of things, uh, but it's not happening. So what I will do, society, this big, horrible blob of conformity, I'm going to stay gay because I can't change that. But I'm going to be the right kind of gay. I'm going to be a, a safe, non-threatening gay. I, I, I will want to get married and I will not really enjoy gay clubs and I won't try all of that whole drag stuff and, you know, this amazing culture of gay people for decades. You know, I'm not going to try that because I'm not that kind of gay. And I said that for so long, whilst also sometimes dressing in drag, so I'm not sure I was <laughs> entirely consistent even then. Um, and, yeah, it's probably only the past sort of, I don't know, five years that I've properly challenged that. And that level of self-hate, I think, that I adopted just to fit in and be welcomed... No, not even welcomed, be allowed. I, I think that's that's um, a really tricky one, mm. you know, and I know, know I'll stop talking now because I know you've had similar feelings. Yeah, I think it's that idea of feeling almost that you have to minimise who you are, that in order to be accepted, sometimes by people that you love and care about very much, you have to minimise an aspect of yourself. And to an extent, it's something that we all have to do. Um, you know, sometimes when you're going into work, you have to dress a certain way. You have to act in a certain way. You probably wouldn't make the sort of jokes that you might do with friends outside. Um, similarly, you know, if you're going to your mum, mother-in-law's for Sunday dinner, you're going to dress in a slightly different way. So everyone's got that to a certain extent. But I think... Yeah, for me, um, I found that I ended up almost with two lots of being in the closet. I had the first one before I came out to myself as trans um, and before I came out to the first lot of people at university. And then I had the second one where I'd gone through a lot of the physical side of transition and to anybody looking on looked and sounded and acted like a, a stereotypical gay man 
but I was keeping this big thing secret from friends, colleagues, some extended family, your family, um, even to the extent of almost creating a fake backstory for myself of sports that I pretended I played in school, um, pretending to female colleagues that I didn't know exactly about periods and smear tests and things, um, just to kind of fit in, really. And it's very difficult. And I think, um, yeah, it's that kind of feeling that it's difficult to to recognise in yourself, but actually probably is you sort of, you know, you've always been told being different's wrong. And if you've not been told it, you've certainly absorbed it from society. And so you don't want to be wrong and you don't want to make a fuss and you want to fit in. Um, but yes, it means you end up hiding aspects of yourself and then sometimes hating or feeling threatened maybe by people who are able to be open and able to show themselves in all their glory. I remember feeling very jealous of trans people at Pride who could march openly as trans people, um, various YouTubers and staff who were able to talk about their transition. I remember feeling really jealous and really annoyed at them and sort of like almost not wanting them to show off their post-surgery bodies because the scars that they had would mean people might look at mine and know that I was trans. But actually, over the past few years, I've started to have more pride in my scars and, you know, feel actually, yeah, why should I hide them? And why should I minimise that element of who I am? It's not all I am, but it's a really big part of me. And, you know, if people truly are my friend, then they'll like me despite and because of it. Yeah. And it's the thing you were saying about, you know, you make those little compromises when you mm. go into different parts of society, you know, and that, you know, that is part of why we've got this whole podcast, isn't it? Mm. You know, about trying to get people to talk and, and listen and, and understand. And, you know, and maybe for us, you know, we're still still learning, but yeah. for us to be challenged as well, you know, and, and hear different voices that we might not want to. But there's a really clear distinction, and I think this conversation brings it out, is that it's okay in society for people to make compromises in terms of what they believe, how much of themselves they show. And we do it every day. Mm. We do it by not swearing most of us in front of kids. Uh, we do it by naturally most of us being respectful towards older people. Uh, we do it by, you know, changing the way we are to a greater or lesser extent in work. Now, obviously, the best places for employment, you have to change the tiniest amount about yourself. And probably, you know, one of those, for example, is in your life, generally, hopefully, you don't have a manager, mm -hmm. you know, in your, in your house, kind of saying, can you do that? Can you do that? Can you do that? And generally, hopefully, you don't have managers like that anyway. Apologies for the people I manage. <laughs> um, but, you know, and I think there's this idea that any compromise is bad, mm. which just isn't the case. Mm. But I think the key question is how much of yourself do you compromise on mm. and how much are you being made to compromise? If yes. it's a voluntary, community-led, you know, 
kindness driven compromise where you say I'm not going to agree with that that you've just said about me and you're not going to agree with what I've just said about you but let's kindly and with unity kind of think well but what we can agree on is that we should all be safe and happy yeah for example that's a hypothetical argument but if someone says well you can be happy with us if you make sure we don't see what you do yeah and you may have heard that anyone is oh i'm fine with it just uh, as long as they don't rub my face in it yeah you know or um oh you know you can be part of our society as long as you know you urinate where we tell you to yeah and you might have heard that in oh we can't let trans women use bathrooms mm. <laughs> i don't know why they've all got that voice <laughs> and we also police ourselves like yeah. within communities oh you can be gay but you can't be gay if you're overweight or you can't be gay if you're hairy we police ourselves and um all of those layers of of anger and sort of feeling not good enough and how they kind of come out at different times yeah and that probably leads us on to talk about anger now then definitely so the last thing we're going to talk about today is anger and that's a difficult one um because i think people don't always like to get angry or to hear about it but i think it's an important one something that we've talked about a lot before um between ourselves is the idea that in any kind of rights based movement whether that's gay rights or women's rights or trans rights or anything really there comes a point where you seem to get a bit of a division in in the group that's sort of campaigning for rights um do they try to almost blend in to existing society and kind of use the privileges that come with that to change from within or do you get angry do you organize do you change from without um thinking of examples from in the past um with gay rights um back in the the 70s and 80s there was a tension between being out and proud of being gay being visibly different marching at pride having all different kind of sexualities and um things like that in pride um versus the kind of safe in quote marks gay people of we want to get married you want to have children we're just your brother sister teacher everything like that um and there's probably arguments for both of those approaches really um but it can be very difficult i suppose when you're the minority group in question um because often staying in existing society and being non-threatening sometimes that can feel safer on the surface um, than being angry and sort of attacking the system sometimes it can feel like you'll achieve more because you won't be annoying people but the flip side is you might not get your voice heard the same and also if you're constantly trying to sort of blend into society but like we said at the start you're allowed into society to a certain extent and you're allowed into society you know if you're non-threatening you know 
you can you can be gay but you don't be gay in our faces don't be gay in front of the children don't talk to the children about being gay all of that kind of thing um whether it's gay trans whatever the topic is and those constant kind of having to compromise that can really wear you down and that constant kind of hiding and erasing who you are and i think that's what often gets described as microaggressions and it's something that the, the term itself can be quite laughed at, seen as like all those snowflakes with their microaggressions. But actually, if you think about it, if you are only acceptable in society, if you act or behave or dress in a certain way, constantly having to change that. If you think of how stressful it feels, maybe if you work in, say, say if you work in an office, that's dress code every day is you have to wear a suit and a collar and a tie or the equivalent sort of yeah whether you're a man or a woman you have to wear this tight fitting very formal uniform um no matter what you're doing whether you're going out to see clients whether you're walking around a building site whether you're typing on a computer you have to wear that suit and if you have to wear that suit every day and you're only taken seriously if you wear that suit, it winds you down and it grinds you down and you sort of get to that point when actually you might snap and you've had enough and you don't want to sort of be only conditionally okay. You want to be more than okay. You want to be accepted and you actually, do you know what? Why should it matter if I'm wearing that suit? What if I want to wear a tracksuit today? Um, and you're still the same person and you're equally valid. So, yeah, I think that's kind of where a lot of anger comes from. And I know you've got a story to share. Yeah. But before I say that, that's really interesting about the suit thing. I hadn't thought of it like that, because actually, what does everyone do if they have a job where they wear a suit? What do you do when you come home? Take it off. You take it off. Like, I hadn't really thought of it like that, but it's exactly like that. You just can't ever take that suit off no. if you're in a minority group of any kind mm. you know maybe sometimes in the safety of your own home but even then you've got the media um you know we've we've tried in the safety of our own home just trying to you know take the minority suit off and through twitter and tv and every media report we're told all the time about how awful you are as a trans person yeah. so we're in that suit constantly yeah yeah and it's really shit Definitely. sorry for the language. yeah <laughs> no it is yeah, yeah. So my my experience with anger is, is probably a bit different and I I have a long and troubled relationship with anger really. Uh, not that my siblings would probably say that. I, I was known for a, probably a big temper when I was younger, I think. But I remember we used to, I used to volunteer uh, at the Pilgrimage Trust taking um, kids with disabilities or um, pressures at home or other challenges um, away for a week um, and despite my mixed feelings now about the Catholic Church uh, it was a brilliant uh, experience uh, and you could see uh, the huge impact that having a week of sort of constant attention attachment and support had on all of these kids i was taken as well when i was a kid and it was um, i think i've said before maybe not on these podcasts but elsewhere that it was one of the first times that i felt properly accepted uh, for um despite my disability 
you know, I, I was suddenly loved and accepted and welcomed because because of that disability. Um, so that's why I have such conflicted feelings towards mm -hmm. the Catholic Church, because I was accepted for the first time for one part of myself and, and absolutely hated for another part of mm -hmm. myself. And it was really difficult. But I remember um, one of the priests uh, who went with us, an absolutely amazing, amazing man called uh, Father Kev, um, just really kind and, and warm and just one of the best people um, in the church, I think. Um, but I do now disagree with him on just one thing that he said. We took this uh, young boy who um, was experiencing lots of difficult things, I think, at home. You know, you could kind of see the way that he, he might go without the support. And I think I was about 17 or 18 at the time. And um, I was outside uh, having a cigarette uh, with the priest, which was weird. <laughs> um, and I remember just getting really upset and just saying, I feel so angry because, you know, after two or three days, this boy's behaviour and approach was starting to change. You know, and he went from being scared of going in a lift to suddenly going in. You couldn't stop him going in a lift, which led to a whole different type of problems. Um, and I just said, I'm so angry. I'm so angry. I, I just don't know what to do. And we're going to send him back. And, you know, what's going to happen? And what, how can we help him? And I remember um, Father Kev saying, well, anger doesn't do anything. Now, he may have been making a broader philosophical point that I'm not aware of. So, you know we'll find out but um i really took that to heart and um through the rest of my life as well then as i've got older i've become really averse to anger i i, I don't like it it feels very uh poisonous when it's inside and it's only recently after talking to a lot of different people that i've i've really come round to the idea of anger um and that actually anger when it's focused and when it's righteous i suppose sorry to sound like i'm not a bible bashing preacher i promise but mm -hmm. I, I, I mean righteous in terms of from a good place if it's that type of anger actually it can get you to do stuff mm. about bad things definitely yeah you know and it overrides your nervousness your need for tolerance and acceptance and it really really drives you to actually make changes mm. and i think that leads me to kind of the title of the episode which is not uh, a weird reference to the crown um, <laughs> where there was an episode with this title cri de coeur or core i'm not sure i'm not good at french um i was really annoyed when i saw that title um mm -hmm. a few or last year or two years ago because i've i read it somewhere once and i've wanted to use it somewhere because it just sounds beautiful because you know exactly what it means a cry from the heart and and i think that is how I feel sometimes about you because I can see the impact that this has on you mm. all the time and yeah it makes me angry but also it comes from a place of just sheer terror mm. because I remember when you know you were kind of I suppose less hench and, <laughs> and stacked or whatever the word is and you know you'd go to the toilet and in the middle of a busy pub in Newport and you know, other people have the privilege of sitting in a pub while their loved one goes to the toilet, able to relax mm. and not even think about it. Whereas if you were in there longer for three or four minutes, I'd be thinking, is he OK? Is he OK? And that constant fear 
has what's lived with me since I've started going out with you. So that's mm. been 10 or 11 years of that constant mm. fear. Now, obviously, it's worse for you, so I'm not saying it's hard for me at your expense. But I can't help then feel angry when people start talking about how people need to police who goes into what bathroom mm. because that's not going to help with that fear. That's just right. going to spread that fear around to more and more people. Yeah. And I think... To me, you know, for any listeners at the moment, that's why I suppose this episode is our cri de coeur, or mm. however you say that. It's our cry from the heart, which is to say anger isn't bad. And if you see trans people getting angry sometimes over something that you see as maybe inconsequential or the use of a wrong pronoun or, or something that you feel from a position of whatever relative privilege you have, you see as minimal... I just hope you remember this cry and listen and think, actually, maybe there is more to it than this. Maybe just on this day, that suit was a bit too heavy for that person. Mm. You know, and I think it's really, really important and it can apply to every kind of group. You know, I, I know I've referenced it in a lot of the podcast book, but the the Black Lives Matter protests, yeah. you know, people wondering why are people rioting and protesting so angrily why don't they work through democratic processes and get their voices heard well they've tried that for yeah. what 400 years <laughs> yeah exactly so f forgive us if you know all of the different groups across the world don't necessarily want to work through a sort of lovely friendly diplomatic conversation yeah yeah and we probably would if we could yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah is there anything sorry i've ranted then massively at the end i i honestly don't think there's anything for me to add i think um yeah i'd just say to people to listen and yeah. to yeah listen to that cry from the heart and sort of just remember that you can take that suit off at the end of the day but not everybody can yeah. and just make things in your own relationships workplaces friendship groups allow people to bring all of themselves as far as they can and be able to loosen that tie or take that jacket off sometimes if they want to 